0: All right, ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to the year of 2022, here with the Bizzle, back on the Bizzlecast, or if you're a first-timer, you are most welcome. Either way, As we start to relaunch the podcast and a whole bunch of projects here at BizzleCast that we're calling BizzleCast 2.0, and I'll talk about other forums later, you picked a phenomenal first major BizzleCast to listen to uh, this year because I have on—I still can't believe this—I have on for an extended interview— Uh, One of the great modern sci-fi writers, in my opinion, and fantasy, Adrian Tchaikovsky uh, from uh, from the UK, um, and someone who uh, grew up reading fantasy, wanting to write fantasy, and his Shadows of the Apt series got him into the industry, got his foot in the door, did very well through 10 books, but it was in 2016 when he released his first official science fiction full-length book, Children of Time that hit all the charts, that won all the awards, got all the praise from books critics, from both critics and fans, and even celebrities, um, which you'll hear about some of those stories if you're good and you stick around long enough. Uh, it was really Children of T- uh, Time in 2016 that blew up Adrian. And I was absolutely thrilled and honored and still floored um, and so happy I was able to do this interview with him uh, because... It was already going to be one of the biggest names I'd ever had on the Bissell cast before, and one of some, sort of the, my own personal um, major, uh, biggest major uh, idols or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, uh, icons in my mind's eye, um, especially in the literary world, but really anywhere who can write such great fantasy and science fiction, and is now uh, in his recent novella, which we talk about extensively, the *Elder Race*, g- combining the genres and mixing them up and throwing them in a whole new direction. Direction. It was amazing to have Adrian on. It would have been great if I had only had 20 minutes. Instead, he gave me over two hours and was really engaged, and we had a phenomenal discussion, the two of us. It was really more of a discussion and conversation uh, than a straight interview. He's an amazing guy. He's an amazing mind, both in his own work and just as someone to talk to. And we just really connected i was already planning and i'm going to lead you into the first part of what's going to be a two or three part series that was part of this big interview because he was so amazing to give me and really engage in over two hours um, and uh, we talk about um, his coming up into the industry, how he got his foot in the door, his first bi- big break, starting as a fantasy writer and so forth. And we also do some nerd outs. So actually when I started the interview, uh, I was playing, I was just doing a quick, um, uh, um, you know, nerd uh, uh, breaking the ice kind of thing that I like to do with all my guests, which is to talk about something, you know, relevant adjacent, but not in the main topic or just a common interest. And it was going to start with Dune, but ended up going uh, to... Not just Dune, but the Dune mini series, and role-playing games, and Warhammer, which is really important because now he's writing for Warhammer, like one of the main Warhammer writers, which is a big, big deal. Um, and I'm a huge fan of, of of the Warhammer property as well, and that'll come in in the various um, uh, episodes with Adrian here. Um, but anyways, while well, the entire like 2 hours and 15 minutes that we did in one shot, uh, he, he was absolutely fantastic. You can hear me just how excited I am. You'll be able to sort of hear it in my voice. Um, I, I, normally I will, uh, side down, in the future guys will have video broadcasts of these as well, but because of some sound potential issues with this one going overseas and this being such a huge deal, I was not going to screw the sound on this up. So uh, we did video chat, but I I kept this just to audio. Um, But you'll definitely be able to hear in my voice how pumped I am. Um, and so, so yeah, so we talk about the nerd topics, we talk about him getting into the industry, um, but after listening through a bunch of times to this, and by the way, this was recorded weeks ago, uh, almost a month ago right now, I knew this, I was going to release it around mid-January, um, but now that it is mid-January, it was like, oh man, that time flew by, it went by much faster, um, than I thought it would, um, uh, but I've been had a chance to listen to it a whole bunch of times, do a bunch of little edits here or there, and I decided to actually I'm going to release the second half of the interview first here. So this is the Adrian interview part one, in which we um, have already discussed our sort of fun nerd topics with Dune and role playing and so forth. We've already discussed him coming up through the industry. That stuff is going to be available in parts two and three, um, and also I will release the entire um, unedited, uncut. Uh, unadulterated, adulterated uh, uncut, um, uh, interview because we did it in one take basically. It was just a little couple spots here, or there. Um, and if you're like me, you love, you know, great two hour interviews. Uh, and because of him, this is definitely in the category of great two hour interviews, especially if you're a fan, but even if you just like science fiction, fantasy, or just hearing about the writing and creative process, this is definitely for all of you. Um, and, uh, so, This one is going to start, again, about halfway through the interview um, when I shift us hard into um, how and why he suddenly decided in 2016 or leading up to 2016 um, to suddenly start writing science fiction, which he's already loved. He's he, he's um, always loved. Excuse me. Um, uh, but you know he'd become a fantasy writer. He started as a fantasy writer. He was good at it. The money was good. Uh, the publicity was good and getting better. The reviews were getting getting better and so forth. And he said. As you'll hear here talk Why he decided to suddenly write a science fiction A book, Children of Time uh, In 2016 that, oh by the way Happened to be the one that completely blew him up From like a cult favorite to Like a great mainstream author That is liked and respected um, By both uh, the mainstream and the nerds And the critics uh, Both the mainstream and the nerd critics And and so on and so forth Um, And uh, it was really a showstopper Of of a work Um, And while he's been able to still do some fantasy Um, he's very much been running with the science fiction uh, (laughs) rugby ball so to speak uh if it's a color ball Uh, um, uh, since then Um, and so I said you know what this is the thing that introduced him to me because obviously Children of Time was the thing that blew him up to to the general public Uh, is how most people came to him just sort of numerically and now all of us are going back and reading his older works and of course reading all of his newer stuff the Shards of Earth series which is getting going and of course as I mentioned we're going to for sure talk about Elder Race, amazing amazing novella that he just released within this past year Um, but I thought it would be good to actually have Part 1 be diving right into, okay, so suddenly you decided to put aside the thing that was making you the money and giving you all all the attention, um, including uh, your contract with with the publishers, who were nice enough, as he's going to talk about, to give him basically one shot at sci-fi, thinking he just needed to, quote-unquote, get it out of his system. Well, he got it out of his system, and apparently there was a lot more in the system, and people were loving what was in that system, uh, because he's now published a whole bunch of science fiction books. now that have sold great that are getting 10 out of 10s everywhere deservedly so including the elder race and shards of the earth in this past year and the children of time series which is continuing along with some of those so um thank you for joining me here for part one uh parts d- there will be either one or two more parts um uh and that will um whether there's just a part two or part two and part three just really quickly and put this in the show notes as well um that will include our opening discussion which is really just 40 to 45 minutes of us like being total nerds talking about Dungeons and Dragons, Dune, the uh, 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 role-playing games, Warhammer, and so forth, which is great. And then, of course, just his sort of story ab- about how he became a storyteller and was re- literally weeks away from quitting and giving up. Um, and it's a very, very uh, inspirational and relatable, uh, the struggles that he went through, and also the mindset that he had to stick with it. And yes, he got some breaks, but only after pushing and fighting hard for years and years. It's, uh, it's an inspiring tale, and I, I'm very excited to release that in part two but first let us jump into uh, right into the fray here to talk about what was going on in the brain of Adrian Tchaikovsky. Um well children's time was released 2016 you know in the year or two leading up to 2016 this was uh, simmering um, and marinating and of course he has to put it past his publishers, um, and then he says, okay, I'm going to do this. Why, how, and what What was the result of it? We're going to jump right into that, um, as well as a couple of the uh, sort of genre-busting books that l- led up to it um, around that time, 2014, 2015, 2016, including Guns of the Dawn, um, which you'll hear right in the beginning, um, and then into the wider discussion of Children of Time in the science fiction work. So thank you guys so much for joining me. Long intro, as always, uh, but uh, I, I, goddamn, this was just such a fun, um, almost exhilarating interview to do um, b- because, you know, well, Adrian is, you know, isn't someone I grew up with because I'm kind of an old guy now. He's definitely the kind of guy I would have grown up with, like Feist or the Dragonlance writers. We bond over Dragonlance. Yes, go Dragonlance. grin forever, baby. Weiss and Hickman. Gotta love it. Um, yes, we bond on some of the, the, that stuff as well. And the Warhammer, which he's writing for, which is a big, big, big deal to start writing for Warhammer because not only is it a huge existing sci-fi property, but um, but he's had dozens dozens dozen of amazing books, like really well-written um, books over the last couple decades. But he's a major addition to the Black Library Warhammer community. So let me get you right in. Talking about Adrian's shift into science fiction leading up to in The Children of Time in 2016, his career blowing up, and talking about some of his great science fiction works that he's put out in the last few years. Is he going to go back to fantasy? Is he going to stick to science fiction? Is he going to do both? Or maybe he's going to try and do some more genre busting, which he's really been doing from the beginning. Because as you'll hear, and thanks again for joining us, I hope you guys really love this as much as I enjoyed uh, doing it, conducting it, being a part of it, and listening to it a million times, and now doing the final edit on. As you'll hear, he comes up with the ideas that he wants to write about before he thinks about the genre or, or things like that. It's an excuse for him to explore things that he already loves and is interested in and learn more about them through the process of writing, which is awesome uh, when that can happen uh, in the creative process and certainly has been awesome for all of us to experience. So thank you, Adrian, again uh, and thank you guys, BizzleCast listeners um, for all of your support over the last however number of years, five or six years, and we're thrilled to be back with the BizzleCast and we're thrilled to be here with Adrian Tchaikovsky to launch, uh, to, to really launched the Bizzlecast 2.0 podcast talking about his sci-fi children of time and so on and so forth so uh without further ado but you know we had to have the theme music so let's do this people so as always thank you for joining me enjoy the podcast kick back and relax the force is strong and is with us always and never forget
1: we have hope rebellions are built on hope
0: of this moment the force is strong
1: make ten men feel like a hundred i will take the next chance and the next time. you're rebels aren't you
0: called the Jesse James Jesse aka the Bizzle Yo, oh, the Bizzle thank you <laughs> the Bizzle thank you the Bizzle yeah the Bizzle okay so you start with four and you end up at 10 and then all of a sudden you're selling tons of books you're getting critical review good critical reviews and now it's 2016 and you're like you know what I'm going to write a book called Children of Time that's going to win awards in a genre I haven't technically written in yet. And it's going to lead to a whole other part of my career that, oh, by the way, is going to lead me writing to one of the loves of my life, Warhammer, uh, and, <laughs> among other things down the road. So how did you go from four books getting the chance to 10 books being best selling and critically acclaimed? Uh, let's start there and then we'll jump to 2016 and, and the move to sci-fi.
1: I mean honestly the so the shadows of the app books, they did okay. Um they were not I don't think you'd ever have called them best They they got some nice reviews. They did all right they obviously did well enough for them to let me keep writing them. Uh although like I say, I don't think I'd necessarily have got away with ten books um say even just a few years later, because the um the landscape changed quite a bit in a few years. Um and I had another fantasy book after that, which was Guns of the Dawn, which is still one of my favorite of my own my own books. Um, uh, just, just just we- to sorry, Adrian, just to tease
0: it, sorry, Agent, just to tease it. I'm currently listening to the amazing Emma Newman read Guns of the Dawn, and she's a great writer, and I love listening to her read her Plan to Fall books. But dude, I mean, guys, I, I can't even describe Guns of the Dawn. It's like it's like a, it's like a feminist Western flipped on its head and it, it's incredibly dark and violent at times. But when you hear Emma Newman, you know, she's like, she has this thing where she's like very dark, but very sweet at the same time. Uh, I'm only about 20% into it, but sh- sh- it, I'm loving the book and, and she's doing a great job with it. Feel free to talk about the audiobook side of things if you want at any point, because you've got at least, three great female um uh, uh readers uh, uh that i've listened to and i know that you're very um uh high on uh, the fellow that's uh d- doing the apt uh, i believe right the shadows mm-hmm. books now um uh sorry, sorry to interrupt you i just had to mention that because i literally was listening to guns in the dawn running around today with emma newman i was like oh i love this this is such a great combination and i know you guys are friends too i believe so shout out to emma yeah. newman G- guys just trust me just google her audible her amazon her you you can't go wrong
1: yeah, now Emma does a phenomenal good job with that. And honestly, I, I think I've been very lucky with pretty much all my audio, audiobook readers uh, so far. But um, so, yeah, in Gun to the Dawn, which the greatest tagline we'd never thought of at the time um, that a friend of mine came up with is Pride and Extreme Prejudice is the um, is, is, is the best way to describe Gun to the Dawn in one sentence. Having said, I can't do that. Um, but I, I mean, I very much grew up on hard science fiction, science fiction books. And I wanted to do one as a bit of a punt, really. And I'd read a lot of research about spider behavior, which was fascinating. And I wanted to use that in a book. And so I, I basically went to the publishers, Pam McMillan, and said, I'd like to write this this book about giant spiders in outer space. And the books, the fantasy books, were doing just about well enough that they thought they... I, that they agreed to indulge me in this and thought, well, right, I'll get this out of my system and then go back to writing fantasy. And it was, a, it was definitely a punt. Um, I mean, the, the money side of things was considerably smaller than for the fantasy books. It wasn't a book that anyone thought would do terribly well. And I was very much kind of ensconced in the mid-list, as, as, as authors say. And then for no readily explicable reason, the book did ridiculously well. And also, and it wasn't. It didn't. Is it didn't really explode onto the scene either. It was. It was doing pretty small numbers, and then it got on the Clark, Arthur C. Clarke Award shortlist, which it subsequently went on to win. And it was that which catapulted it up. And honestly, it's just not stopped going since. And you know, since then, I'm now kind of a science fiction author who occasionally writes fantasy, rather than a fantasy author who wrote a science fiction book um so yeah you, know, you kind of get caught up by the momentum at that point you don't necessarily have a great deal of <laughs> input in where your career goes
0: is this like sci-fi is your, in your heart and fantasies in your head or it's more complicated than that
1: it's it's i mean the main thing that i've always wanted to do and the thing that so far my um the trajectory of my career has indulged me in is I want to keep, I want to write lots of different stuff, and I want each book to go places that my previous writing hasn't gone. Even if we're talking about very minor kind of uh, changes of direction within particular subgenres. And I've been extremely lucky that I've had the momentum since Children of Time st- took off that I've been able to pitch quite a wide variety of science fiction and fantasy concepts, and there's always been someone willing to take me up on it um so it is yeah i mean i i'm deeply attached to pretty much everything i write but it's i try and do something different and push myself in different ways with each new project
0: i just want to put a pin on extreme prejudice because you like to use that term you're not the only one um and uh i had to look I, i looked this up uh and i just wanted to double check it i thought that i mean it's it's a ter- it's a real term from like Spooks, um, but it was popularized from Apocalypse Now. Um, there is some moments in Apocalypse Now where it's you know they're about to napalm tons of people and then have a party. Um, but uh, uh, the the uh, the uh, you know a lot of the reviews of Guns of the Dawn talk about it, you know Austin with guns kind of thing. Um now it's totally different but that did remind me a little bit of Naomi Novak's uh Temeraire series yep. uh, where she it, it visits very real uh historical events in the Napoleonic age throughout the world with dragons as sort of like uh, uh you know how, like the problem the problem with World War 1 was they didn't have planes yet and so it was just uh just you know dug huge trenches and like it didn't move for years at a time because th- there wasn't that next te- technology jump, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to really, uh, well, I don't want to like celebrate World War II, but you know, obviously the, techno- the technological innovation that happened between then and World War II allowed for a true World War, uh, with the advances of, of, of air, land, and sea. And so the dragons in, in the Temeraire books are sort of like that wild card of like, okay, how do we stop the, N- the Napoleonic forces who are just decimating us? Like, we need a, a third pl- uh, player, you know? And like, it, it, it's, it's dragons, but it's built into the history and there's like, Different breeds, and you got if you want fire breathers and and whatever, and like at points to, she's a great writer um, of other things too. At points you you. You fall into the, of thinking like, oh yeah, of course there were dragons in 18th century warfare. Like, <laughs> it, it makes total sense. Like, it was like airplanes before there were airplanes, right? It would have solved all sorts of problems. So, um, did you, did you go into that, uh, to guns, uh, thinking that sort of uh, Austin, Austonian, whatever it's called, uh, um, aspect to it? Or was that just sort of in, in the ether of your brain as, as it was developing?
1: It was, it was very definitely, um, that, I mean, it is basically it's, it's, um, you know, Eliza Bennett goes to war. It is, it is absolutely intentionally in that kind of Austin pride and prejudice sort of, um, sort of mold. So I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, it's, it's, yeah, it's a bit of Austen. It's a bit of uh, Bernard Cornwell. It's a bit of Ursula Le Guin because there is a certain amount of magic and so forth going on.
0: Well, I I I appreciate your time so much, um, but we have to get to Children of Time in the science fiction phase because, you know, I came across your stuff with Children of Time and more recent science fiction and undoubtedly if you just go to amazon and goodreads you can tell uh, I, I mean i assume that the sales figures reflect the number of reviews and you know how high in the list it is and so forth plus the awards um and the acclaim i mean peter hamilton i mean that's a huge um compliment um talking about uh, evolutionary um uh grand scale uh science fiction uh, um I don't read a ton of Hamilton. I love Ian Banks. Um, that was the closest thing I, I could uh, come up with. Um, uh, he calls it culture. Uh, you have um, Commonwealth is Hamilton. Um, what's it in shards? You have some, something similar to culture in shards. Am I remembering this Right. I've been binging uh, your books. Well, I th- might be mixing this up. Like uh, In, so in, in Shards of
1: Earth, you've got the um, the hegemony, who are yeah. uh, yeah. the big alien guys. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, were those guys uh, influences on, on... Well, okay, let's get to the personal first. How did you decide to go headlong into, uh, into science fiction. Were you aware that y- you were suddenly channeling a new energy uh, that could take you to the next level when it was happening? And we should mention that you have a zoology degree, I believe, and, uh, or s- uh, something similar, and animals play a huge part uh, in-, in your books um, uh, which harkens to the uplift books of David Brin and so forth. I've noticed you used Bryn as a name for something. I'm wondering if that was a uh, a, a nod to to the uplift there. Um. So so w- what was in your head for Children of Time? And you're like, okay, I like science fiction, but I like things a little fantastical, and I like animals. So let's have this crazy woman throw genetic material at a planet to create primates to do god knows what and have a, a super race of spiders result instead i mean god those first five pages are just so memorable go ahead
1: uh well so there is a new zealand scientist called dr fiona cross who did some f- fascinating experiments exploring the behavioral capabilities of porsche jumping spiders um And I mean, weirdly enough, this is actually a lot better known now because uh, it turns up in a David Attenborough show and all that sort of stuff. But it was it was completely news to me when I came across the original research. And I wanted to write a book about well, what if given that these these spiders who have very, very, very tiny brains, they're capable of very, very complex um, behaviors. They have you know, concepts like object permanence and things like that, which is not something a human being is even born with. That's a thing we have to develop in our first few years. Um, yeah, so you, say, you say like basically.
0: they have 30,000 neurons and humans have like 90 billion or something. You, you yeah, give yeah. a number early uh, in the uh, book but, that's just staggering.
1: But one of the things that I think modern uh, behavioral science is working out is actually um, brain size is a bit overrated as an indicator of what you can do and i wanted to write a book of, in a, about a world where these spiders had had the opportunity to evolve into a human level of sentience and become the dominant species and so the setup of children of time is very much my excuse to explore that thought experiment which is something i tend to do in quite a lot of my um my hard science fiction stuff is, I want to explore uh, you know, the idea that I want to explore comes first. And after that, I have to deconstruct sort of almost like retcon the setting that would give me the opportunity to explore the idea in the way I want to do it. Um, which is so I mean, Doors of Eden works in a very similar way. Um, could you so, could you just give
0: could you just for the for the listeners uh, guys you got to go out and read these books I'll talk about <laughs> it later and add it on and I'll put in the copy and so forth um, uh, and if you follow me online you know could, could you give give the uh, the synopsis of of the the wider idea behind Children of Time you don't have to like describe what happens in the book but yeah. sort of the the wider yeah
1: so uh, yes we are um, humanity goes to the stars we are terraforming planets we that we eventually want to go and live on. Dr. Avrana Kern, the um, who is arguably at least one of the main protagonists of the book in a variety of forms, um, is in charge of the terraforming and she wants to uplift animals to be our kind of companions in the stars. And she decides she's going to do it with monkeys, Um, except things go horribly wrong because there is a whole anti kind of anti-science, anti-space thing going on on Earth, and a terrorist gets onto her space station and, and blows it up so that the monkeys do not arrive on the planet. What does arrive is the nanovirus intended to uplift them. And for want of monkeys, it starts to infect other creatures on the planet, um, including a variety of invertebrates. Um, the main ones in the book being um, the jumping spiders and also there, is, uh, there are kind of uplifted ants, which are a particular problem that the emerging jumping spider society has to deal with early mm-hmm. on in the book.
0: And, and that, then becomes
1: a bit of a. But, but
0: this is what's great about your writing. You don't even wait. In the very first chapter, she's giving this big, grandiose speech about what you just described and how it's important. In her mind, she's so condescending about everybody there. So she wants to uplift other primates, but the primates in front of her, she can't stand and think are, are totally <laughs> inferior. And meanwhile, the guy that's hired to like push the red button that she needs is actually a terrorist, head of the terrorist cell trying to stop the whole thing and she just barely yep. gets out it's like in the uh, uh, I don't know if you're a Firefly uh, fan uh, in the Serenity movie, you know, Chewie tells 4 is the big operative or whatever. Uh, and you've got that big space battle that that uh that the Firefly crew uh, maneuvers between the the Reaver zombies and the the evil alliance. And as soon as it starts going bad, would tell 4 has has like his own uh uh escape pod just for himself on like the bridge of the capital ship, so he could escape while the entire fleet's blowing up, just so he could get down to the planet and and kill Malcolm Reynolds or whatever. I love it. And even while she's floating in space. She's like, God damn it! Like the, the escape team better not be far away. I love it. I, I, I there's not enough female characters like this. You know what I mean? It's just like, fuck you! Like I'm gonna do what I want. Uh, oops, uh, I should have maybe uh, I, I should have maybe interviewed the uh, lead engineer or whatever a little bit more. Where did that particular <laughs> idea come from to just have everything go wrong like right from the start?
1: um i mean to a certain extent it's it's necessity because i mean what happens and and as you say this isn't a spoiler because this really does happen right at the start is what's happened to a space station very much reflects what what goes on on earth there is an enormous conflict and society basically ends up back in the stone age for quite a long time it claws its way back into space there's an arc ship because earth at that point is not a very pleasant place to live and people need to get off it the arcs the ark builders know from recovered records that humanity has been to the stars before and has prepared worlds for people to live on so they set off on this sort of 2000 year sublight journey to the place they hope is going to have somewhere they can live because they've got nowhere else at that point but by the time they get there um, that world already kind of belongs to the spiders and um, as the saying goes hilarity ensues (laughs) Uh, so it's very it, the it, it's you know the, half the story is told from the point of view of the people on the ark ship who are going in and out of suspension and therefore are the same people all the way through, and the other half of the story is told in successive generations of the spiders as they build a society and kind of go through various levels of complexity and technology and so forth.
0: Was uh was Children um in your mind a multi book a series um right off the bat b- before it did so well
1: nope um it was it's it's a very um and certainly yeah you know, for anyone who's wondering do i am I going in for a long haul here? It's fine, it's a book that works perfectly on its own. I certainly had ideas of what I might want to do with it because I never write anything but to close a door. I can always go back to something, and obviously it did very well. I thought well, all right, I can probably sell my publishers on a sequel which i I did, and there's a third one in fact coming out next year and Yes, it means I got I get to play in that universe more and go other places and look at other species um, that have been sort of affected by this whole uplift program in different ways. Um, but no, it was it was very much. This is the book, because I mean, at the time, like I was saying, I didn't ever think this was necessarily going to be more than a bit of a blip before going back to epic fantasy.
0: Once the reviews and sales started coming in, was there an "oh fuck" moment? I got to start writing sci-fi now, and and not stop fantasy, but I really got to start writing a big, epic, uh, you know, galactic, evolutionary sci-fi.
1: Um, I mean, I think. I or mean, was it liberating,
0: the, or was it liberating?
1: It was all a bit. To be honest, I mean, it's it's it's. it's I'm just trying to. Th- I'm thinking back to see. Because I'm just trying to think. Because the next things I wrote, I wrote another fantasy series with um, Pan Macmillan, which was the Echoes of the Fall series, which is a a trilogy. Um, But by the time that was advanced, it was obvious, you know, that the the sci-fi was really taking off. So there were, God, I'm just—it's quite hard. There have been sufficient books over sufficient time it's quite hard to now remember what order everything came out in but about that time i started working with a variety of other other publishers as well so i've got books out with head of zeus and with rebellion um and and novellas with tor.com and so forth so i've never been short of ideas and what the success of children of time really did was it opened a lot of doors to me i can now get a lot of the more of these ideas out i'm not Bound to a single chain of books with a single publisher, I can get. Uh, I can just start spinning pitches out to a variety of different um, publishers and and just kind of accelerate what I'm doing because I know that I will be able to get things in print. Um, so yeah, it, it was very much a matter of just picking up the pace and turning out more and different stories and just waiting to see at what point someone would turn around and say, no, that's enough and haven't quite got there yet. I'm sure it'll happen at some point in the near future.
0: God, I have so many questions. Um, I want to end (laughs) on um, Elder Race. Mm-hmm. which is a value published recently that it's totally blown my mind and I love and I really relate to, and also has some uh, fantasy sci-fi hybrid stuff that I talked about earlier loving and has some connections to, uh, at least to my brain with some fantasy writers uh, that I love. Um, but just in terms of the science fiction thing. So uh, one of the questions I had written down was, um, and we sort of talked about a- a- ahead of time was the extent to which um when it comes to content production, whether it's music or podcasts or uh, books, uh, especially with people uh, actually buying books more now, um, the ebook thing never really quite took off. Uh, I mean, I read ebooks, I still prefer um, uh, real books, uh, physical books, and most people I talk to do as well. Um, Uh, I mean, the fact that the Barnes and Noble in this country even exists and still has a ton of stores uh, uh, um, with Amazon doing what it does is impressive in and of itself. Um, but there's a sense to uh, to which if you publish too much, there can be diminishing returns even if the quality remains good, but there is a sense also in which being prolific um is uh has non diminishing returns has um uh, uh you know spiraling a- outward upward returns um so I guess this is a two part question one sort of about you and one your general observation, which is <laughs> You know, do you publish do you write and publish so much because you love it and you can um, it, are there a financial uh, or or logistic or considerations to to doing so do you worry that that you're over publishing um, uh, uh, and uh, in general I mean just you have observations about the the concept i hope i 'm communicating, uh, w- which is that the sort of common sense notion of diminishing returns when it comes to content, especially long c- books let 's be honest that you know not all of the population is educated enough to understand, let alone know about or or, or come across at least um uh, so, yeah, any of those things having to do with your own uh, 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 prolific approach um, and just in general, your observations of, of mass content production, at least in the book industry? I know that was a big question.
1: Um, I don't have a particularly cogent answer. I suspect that it works very differently. So you with different authors, you see some authors who've written a very small number of books who are colossal names in the industry, like they Pat Rothfuss. Um, and we're still waiting for that authors. third
0: book, Pat, come on,
1: but he you know he's, but he's still, a, he's still a very, a huge landmark in huge. the, um, yeah. in the, in, in, the, in the, you know, in, in, the genre and you know, other, other authors like, um, who are you know, another huge landmark would be Sanderson, for example, and Sanderson writes a lot of books. He writes books about the same kind of rated do, I think. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's he, but he, he is he's a lovely he's a guy, as very, is Patrick very, Rothfuss. Very very popular. Yeah,
0: they're yeah. both
1: both very um, lovely guys. And I don't think there's any. I think it would be entirely possible to get diminishing returns. I I think that I'm hopefully avoiding that by not write by writing lots of different books. I mean, this one of the you can get stuck in a rut um, with. Um, Especially if you only write, say, epic fantasy. Um, there are certainly epic fantasy writers past where you kind of feel that's kind of the same book over and over again. That was what people want. That's certainly what, what their fans like. But it's, I can imagine that being, you know, uh, if I look at a, say, a previous fantasy series that was brought out, say, in the 90s, and there are 15 books and they're all very big, and again, I'm probably not going to start on that. That seems a bit overwhelming. Dragonlance, for Um, example,
0: which I still love and grew up reading tons of Dragonlance books. I love Dragonlance,
1: but it's, I I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, weirdly Dragonlance is actually the thing that kicked me on to writing in the first place. Oh
0: really? Um, Yeah. Weiss and Hickman are brilliant. I think just in general, but it it was, it is is
1: very much that first trilogy and then maybe the next three books. And then I think you, you do start to fall off. And I mean, actually, so diminishing returns is a purely commercial thing. If you write a series of books, you will always get a diminishing return because no one is going to be buying book four of the series who hasn't read the first three. So with each volume in a series, that your kind of potential readership is always going to diminish. Unless you somehow re- completely reboot the series and say, fine, you can." St- here's your new starting point, mm-hmm. which is a thing I know a lot of writers are currently talking about, the idea that you have a series uh, much like Banks did, where it doesn't really matter which of the culture books you come into. Each one stands on its own. You don't have to read any of the previous ones. Uh, And it's quite a trick, but it works very well if you can do it. And I know um, that's kind of the current Holy Grail, as far as I can work out with um, science fiction authors, is you have a series and you have that series loyalty with readers, but at the same time, you don't have to have this constantly accumulating um, canon to keep in your mind each time you buy a new book.
0: So, uh, longtime listeners of the Bizzlecast, uh, if you're still with me, th- uh, this long as fans, I- I'm a big box office junkie. And this goes back to my music days. Not because I think the quality obviously has anything to do with box office, but I'm fascinated at the trends because if you look at, say, um, you know, huge budget um, uh, Hollywood movies, let's say movies over $150 million budget uh, going back 20 years, It used to be about 60% of that would be, like, the original, like, Lord of the Rings, the first Matrix movie, late 90s, late 2000s. It used to be about 60% would be in the U.S. um, and 35 to 40 around the world. And then, when the Avengers came out in 2012, and with the Dark Knight, Dark Knight in 2008, and Avengers in 2012, if you look at it, it's so what I oh, I've uh, unofficially patented the one third, two thirds split, which is one third in the U.S. and two thirds worldwide, at least. Sometimes with Harry Potter, it's 28 percent in the U.S. and 72 percent worldwide. Now, China has a big big part of this and so like for example as well as dune did in europe and which i i expected dune to do well in europe U.S. I was a little worried that Dune would either go over the heads of Middle America or would offend people um, uh, because of apparent racial issues. But for whatever reason, uh, people seem to understand that the, the apparent you know white savior thing on uh, Dune is really if not yet is going to be flipped on its head and, and go completely the other way. Um, which is why I, I, you know I think it, it holds up at least as much now as, as, it, as it used to as a pres- prescient a, a series of books itself Uh, but anyways um, uh, but then China had a bad opening for Dune Um, uh, but then after a couple days I guess word spread and they started making more money in China and that was like a big deal even though the US and Europe obviously COVID has made the theatrical stuff um, uh, you know kind of difficult now Spider-Man's coming out and at least in this country people think that it's mostly over even though there's a new strain of COVID Americans are so stupid every time like we got the medicines first we vaccinated for first, and because Americans are just so just dumb about stuff like this, you know, our own stupidity, immediately people stopped wearing masks and started going on planes and stuff like that, and then it, ha- and then it, it spiked again, even with a really good president. Anyway, sorry guys, uh, you know once Bizzle has to get on his political high, ho- left-wing high horse or whatever, our president's trying to save us, just get vaccinated, you fucking idiots. Okay, sorry. Um, that's just directed at Americans. Um, but anyways, point being, Like, Star Wars does extremely poorly in, uh, like Korea and China. They just don't care. Uh, But in, um, but America's like 60%. So The Force Awakens made $2 billion, but a billion of that was in the U.S., which is by far the most ever in the U.S. And 2 billion is up there with the, you know, Final Avengers movies and Avatar for the most ever, but it was still 60% U.S. Um, and if you combine the Commonwealth, like, Rogue One made over a billion dollars, which for a dark, bloody Disney Star Wars movie was way more than they expected. It made it in the U.S., but also in the U.K., Australia, Canada, and the Commonwealth. You know, I I, I know for a fact, having friends in England, English people love Star Wars. It might not be as culturally center, central as it is in this country, where, like, every little boy wants to be Luke Skywalker, or now Rey, but I know, England, you know, it does really well. Anyway, point being, you can learn a lot from the numbers. And... Um, I, you know, I've joked about Sanderson before. Uh, I, he, Sanderson is undoubtedly a, a, a quality writer and knows what the hell he's doing. He got to finish the Robert Jordan novels, for God's sakes. I grew up reading Robert Jordan, but Robert Jordan was also the first guy I read where it became clear to me that he was going to write a thousand plus page book every single year until he died, which he literally did and died. And then they got me m- rest in peace. And then they got Sanderson to do three more of them. And then Sanderson is now putting out a thousand page book a year until he hopefully lives a long time until he dies, Uh, you know? And and so this is part of the saturation thing that I'm talking about, but this is where the reviews come in. So, you know, (laughs) if you just looked at the reviews, you would think that Sanderson sells a thousand times more books than you do. Okay? Now he might sell more books than you do. I'm pretty sure it's not a thousand times more. Now, if you go to your reviews on Goodreads or Amazon, and I'm going to get to why this is problematic. the children of time books by far have the most reviews. All your books have a decent number. But there's a couple there a couple factors into what happens. First of all, more recent books by authors as they get more loved tend to get more reviews and tend to get better reviews. Now I started reading children of time. You can just hard pass on this topic if this is b- b- boring, but I, I noticed this specifically with you and I'm curious. So I started children of time right when ruin came out and children mm-hmm. of time had great user reviews and then ruin came out and got great critical reviews, but sort of Fans were a little mixed on Ruin, at least on Amazon and Goodreads when it came out. But over time, the score has gone up on both Goodreads and Amazon. And the reason for that is you've gotten more fans, and people are getting, are reading other stuff of yours to the point where your most recent book, Shards of Earth, has a 4.27 on Goodreads, which is higher than pr- pr- pretty much um, any. Um, anybody other than sanderson i mean even robert jordan you know is around the 3.9 4.0 that's partially because we have hindsight into robert jordan we love robert jordan we grew up but you know it's it, it's not all amazing through fourteen thousand pages or whatever um uh, but 4.27 for a complicated book i mean i love ian banks ian bank's books are very split among audiences um and i think part of that is just the complexity of it um and one compliment i wanted to give to you was half the time at least i'm reading or listening to your books i gotta be honest i consider myself a smart intellectual guy i went to a top level college got a you know a 3.9 gpa went to graduate school did a thesis on philosophy I don't know what's going on half the time in your books, but your writing is so good that I just stick with it because there's enough character and world-building stuff going on. And then eventually it starts making more sense, obviously. <laughs> but I, I've started and stopped a number of Ian Banks books, and, and authors like it because it's just co- complicated. Even though Peter Kenny, who's who's like one of the best audiobook readers, he does all the Witcher books, Peter Kenny reads Ian Banks books, it's just so bizarre and, and I've physically read them as well. I, I do love Banks and some of them I, I love and have gone through. I think his final book is very underrated, the hydrogen sonata um, and really enjoyed. Um, I think he had some vision that he was, you know, going out the same way Terry Pratchett did with his final books, which are really excellent. Um, uh, but anyways, um, my point being, uh, you know, if you go then to Sanderson's Amazon page He's got like 100,000 reviews and a 4.9 out of 5. But if you read the most read and liked reviews, so like reviews that most people who go to the site read and give a like to as being a helpful review, they're one, two, and three star reviews, a ton at the top, being like, He's overrated. The books are so long. It takes 500 pages for anything to happen. And I'm not making a judgment here. If you like Sanderson, great. I liked Robert Jordan for a while. I happen to like 500 to 600 page tighter books, which you which you do. Um, thanks. Thank you very much, by the way. Um, but, uh, um... You know, Sanderson's a very good writer. Um, but my point being is, I then researched this, and you have, of course, bots, and you have, you know, some people become cults, and then people, you know, flood with reviews or fake reviews. But what I found out was actually, Br- Sanderson has a huge international reading audience uh, the way that J.K. Rowling uh, does and did with Harry Potter. And because his writing is good, but not super complicated, and it's a story that can be followed, it's not teen fiction, um, but, you know, it's something a smart 12-year-old could read, but it's also something that works really well in translation. So it's why um, Marvel movies and Fast and Furious movies and James Bond movies, which can be very good, do excellently in translation overseas, because... There are archetypes that people can hold on to. There are series and characters that people can latch on And so it goes back to my China thing with the box office. is So if Chinese people start loving your books and, you know, Central and Eastern Rus- Europeans and Russians start liking your books, and now, I mean, I have a friend who just got published in Brazil and in South America who writes nonfiction. He's selling a tonnest of books in Brazil now that he got Portuguese translation and so forth. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? And so, I mean, this is partially me critiquing and trying Trying to dispel any notion people that the number of reviews and even the l- level of reviews online mean anything but you, as an author, must at least look uh, and be aware of uh, of of that. Or do you have? Uh, I mean, I'm sure you have more accurate means of getting user feedback. You hear from fans. <laughs> Obviously, the important thing is your publisher keeps wanting you to make more books, so they know that they're selling and that they like them and that they're doing good. I mean, you know, shards is, is being, you know, roundly 10 out of 10 everywhere, uh, which it deserves, which I read. And Elder Race, which we'll end with, is 10 out of 10 in New York Times, and deservedly so, everywhere but it's like Game of Thrones and The Witcher. Season one Game of Thrones, I'm like, this show's brilliant. And the critics were like, eh, this is trash. Season two Game of Thrones, after everybody's watching it, critics were like, this is genius. Season one of The Witcher, I'm like, this is brilliant. This is so loyal to The Witcher. I love it. Critics were like, eh, this is trash. Season two of The Witcher, 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Give them, give them all the wait, Emmys. Wait yeah. a minute,
1: season two of The Witcher is out? Have I missed up? It's coming out on Friday oh right okay Okay, but critics have critics have
0: seen it and sapkowski himself has seen it and so sapkowski you'll appreciate this as a writer sapkowski is known as sort of a curmudgeonly old polish guy (laughs) even though the witcher i would argue is like hyper feminist and extremely liberal and radical politically and is totally a commentary on uh Central and Eastern European racism, hatred, and violence. His other series he's writing right now, Tower of Fools, is a thinly veiled attack, couched in fantasy, of the of uh, the German uh, people's um, unholy alliance with the church uh, over like a thousand year period in Central Europe. I mean, I, this is I, this is real. So anyway, so he he just said you can make a show about um, about my books whatever i I got paid after a while for the video games and they were holding out on me i got money for the witcher 3 which i which he deserves got the money and like but lauren histrick this wonderful lovely middle-aged single uh (laughs) mom who's the showrunner behind the witcher who was behind daredevil and jessica jones and some excellent genre stuff on on netflix she immediately with just charisma got him out of hiding they even did an interview before season one where he was praising her in the show. He's already praised season two. He can't wait for season three. I mean, you don't see this very often with curmudgeonly. I mean, look at Alan Moore. Alan Moore hates everything that's ever been made. <laughs> uh, you know, even two critically acclaimed Watchmen productions, or at least one critically acclaimed Watchmen production. Um, uh, sorry, that was, I do one business long sidebar per podcast. I apologize. Um, so anyway, the bigger point is, what is your perspective of how your stuff is received uh once it's out there or are you immediately like i just want to keep writing the people i care about like this the important people like this and so i can just keep writing and keep doing what i'm doing
1: i mean the first thing i'd say was as an author you're kind of like a mushroom and they keep you in the dark you you are the last <laughs> person to hear how well how well a thing is doing That's funny. or how you know what's been sold and the thing uh especially things like amazon's reporting um on how much has been sold and then that filters through your publisher to you and by the time it gets to you it's like a year later and massively out of date and incredibly hard to understand because you're selling things in like 15 different categories of this particular offer and that offer and this you know this has been sold in a particular way and working out what any of it means is baffling um the 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 truest thing you've just said is the fact that they still want to publish shows they must be doing okay and that's kind of what I cling to to be honest. Um I generally don't read Amazon reviews and I don't read Goodreads reviews. Um I think they're very useful and you know please for heaven's sake write you know do leave
0: Yes, please reviews for leave reviews. What you enjoy. And also, really quickly, um, as, as a th- I think you know this, if you love an author already, guys, and you feel confident, pre order books. Pre ordering books really, really helps the author. Um, and you, it's not like you can't return it anyways, but you're going to end up liking it. So pre order books. But even if you don't, please do leave reviews to balance out the idiots slash robots or whatever's going on out there. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, um, you yeah, know, because of the aforementioned idiots slash robots, I tend <laughs> yeah. not to read those particular categories of reviews. That's I the do term. read, yeah. I do read kind of book blogger reviews when they mm. when I come across them on Twitter. Um, I kind of wish I would, str- I was strong enough not to because it's one of those.
0: Yep.
1: Um, I had an actor friend who basically said, "Well, look, you know, you can ignore the bad reviews, but you've kind of got to ignore the good reviews too. You know, either you are completely." above the whole reviewing thing or you're in it. And then every so often you'll get a gut punch from one that's bad. Um, but I'm not, I am not strong enough in myself to ignore a review that turned up on my tweets, <laughs> my Twitter feed. So I do, awesome. I, I certainly do read that, read those. And I mean, thankfully there aren't, too, there aren't uh, too many bad ones. Um, but yeah, it's, I honestly, the impression I get after, you know, 10 plus years in the business is. Nobody really knows how well anything is doing. Nobody knows until, sufficient, yeah. until sufficiently far sufficiently later that that knowledge is kind of useless. Yep. The, you know, publishers, agents, reviewers, every you, you know if you can see a hundred good reviews, but that doesn't necessarily mean the book is doing phenomenally, it just means that that's your bubble, especially with the way the social media works. you know those are the things that have come past you. It doesn't mean that everyone is reading the book. Hollywood, again, um, just
0: really quickly, Hollywood box office, the only industry where they seem to be required to report numbers, good or bad, but like TV, I mean, when Netflix says in 2015, Jessica Jones is our most watched show, in 2019, The Witcher is our most watched show, Disney Plus says The Mandalorian is the most watched show on the planet... You know, I, I I don't I don't have any reason to doubt them, but they don't give us any numbers, even if there's a way to music. You could at least used to have album numbers. Now, God knows, with Spotify and so yeah. forth, that's an excellent yeah. point. Of nobody really knows. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it ba- really does come down to um, publishers are still willing to take my agents' calls when I have a new book I'm trying to get get into print, and that must mean I'm doing okay and. The thing, I mean, all right. So we we mentioned Pratchett Briepree. Pre- Pre- have you read *A uh, Soul Music*?
0: I've read them all. I've read them all uh, right. uh, multiple
1: times. So in, in *Soul Music*, you have the band, and they're all in it for different reasons. And there's the guy, the lead singer, who's who's kind of following this dream of glory. There's a dwarf horn player in that band, and his thing is he just wants to play his music. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, he, and that's basically my position. As long if I'm in a position to keep writing the stories and they will keep publishing them so people can read them. That's the important thing for me. I'm not saying the money isn't nice because it genuinely is. It's very nice to be able to go full time on this and not have to have a day job as well, which is what I did for most of my professional writing career. But, um, yeah, I mean, as, as as long as I can keep doing what I enjoy doing basically. And so far that's, that's been the case.
0: Absolutely. Well, as, uh, I appreciate you taking so much time. Um, I, I, have a, uh, I have two r- really bizarre superpowers uh, that are only useful in uh, unpaid, uh, or, or I should say, uh, 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 <laughs> fringe podcast. One is, I'm really excellent at predicting future success of young actors. Uh, and I love bragging about it. But if you go back to my earliest podcasts, people like Kelly Steinfeld, Elizabeth Olson, like everyone winning the Emmys this year, who no one knew, I was like, like, I saw Elizabeth Olsen Avengers Age of Ultron. She's like an Olsen sister. That's all anyone knew. I'm like, she's going to be huge, guys. Just wait. She's going to be huge. Now, one division, she's nominated for her. So I have this bizarre talent of predicting. Now, that comes from... I talk about, you know, there's a lot of types of intelligences out there, right? I mean, psychologists, you have a psychology background. There's emotional intelligence. There's intellectual intelligence. There's social intelligence. There's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> recognizing talent is, is one. Um, and that was actually a part where I did... Uh, have success in my music company, um, not necessarily financially, because we weren't out looking for the next big pop star. We were out just looking for sheer talent, and so we were in Africa, we were in Portugal, we were in Brazil. We just wanted talent, um, and so you know, I think recognizing talent is a type of of, uh, of 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 of. Uh, of what's the word I'm looking for? Intelligence uh, that you know can or cannot pay off or whatever. Um, uh, but my other superpower is keeping people on my podcast way too long, way too, longer <laughs> than they possibly should. And this is going to be a new record, not in terms of length, but just in terms of like the quality of the of the guest and how long I kept you on. So I really appreciate it. But if you don't mind, I would love to end on on elder race. Uh, which I didn't realize how recent it was um, because when I heard about what it was uh, and that it was a novella and and what the premise was, I was like, I got to read this. And, you know, essentially, first of all, I should point out that almost all of your science fiction books start with the premise that, let's be honest, isn't a lot of sci-fi books of leaving Earth, having to leave Earth. For, for various reasons. But the reasons for leaving Earth in your, in your series uh, and the consequences and so forth are, are, are very different. Um, and I think, you know, if you want a connection to Earth in sci-fi, you know, Frank Herbert just says it's 30,000 years in the future. We'll mention, you know, old, you know, uh, the, the, the mythical Earth, you know, whatever. That's, that's fine. I actually like when there's a, a connection to you know, Earth, even if it's in myth or, or so forth. So this is one, this is, this is another one. And this is, uh, uh, one that reminds me of some other works that I love in in the two genres where the line between science and magic starts to get blurred. And it starts because there's a a series of, uh, of waves of colonization, but as happens, uh, evolutionarily on this planet, when you separate a population, uh, environmentally completely from the host population there's a chance that the evolution Stops and they just survive. There's a chance that that evolution increases and they become even more advanced, right? As happened with Homo sapiens in East Africa, for example, as opposed to the Neanderthals and the rest of the world. Sorry, guys. Africans are the original humans. We're we're that's why we're bearded. We're 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 the we're the 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 descendants of Neanderthals here in Europe. But anyways, uh um uh but uh uh, or or things can just go south, right? Um, and and this is one where there's uh, uh. in um, an elder race where it, they get disconnected from Earth um, and things kind of go south. But then um, you have two perspectives between a scientist. And someone who sees what's going on as magic, essentially. Well, you, 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 you can describe the setup a little bit better. Um, because this is not only a, a blending of science fiction and fantasy, but it's a very self-aware, almost fourth wall breaking. Um, but it's not because it, it, the, the character's very much in, in in it, um, and they're, you know, unself-aware the, the the level that we are of what's going on, right? But this is very much a here's science fiction fantasy, and here's what happens when this person's coming from the science perspective, and this person's coming from the fantastical, mythical perspective, uh, or so forth. Uh, go ahead, talk a little bit about Elder Race. I think it's just brilliant.
1: Yes, yeah, so I mean, that's it's very much that I wanted to write a book that was. Uh, I mean, there's a lot, there are a lot of settings that do kind of mingle the science fiction and fantasy. And one of the things I'd done before was uh, with Cage of Souls, it's very much a Gene Wolfe style. It's a science fiction book told in the style of a fantasy book. Um, but with Elder Race, I wanted to go a step further than that and write a book which was effectively equally valid as a science fiction story and as a fantasy story. So you have one character who is from this post-technological um, colonist society. Um, they don't have any of the tech left that brought them to that world. They have a kind of medieval level of society. She is going, um, there is a demon that is kind of encroaching on the edge of their lands. No one else is taking it seriously. So she is going to go and speak to the wizard, Nagoth the Elder, um, who helped one of her ancestors against a similar magical threat. The other perspective is Naya, who is an anthropologist from another wave of human exploration, who has been studying her society uh, and is absolutely not supposed to be getting involved in any way and has already failed badly at this.
0: The prime directive and, uh, uh, scenario, you're right.
1: Yes, but he is terrible. He, he freely admits <laughs> well, he's Like Captain Picard is also terrible,
0: let's be honest. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so he allows himself to get recruited because he wants to see what this supposed demon actually is and what follows the story that gets told from alternating points of view and from his point of view he is a scientist he is living in a scientist scientific rational world and he is supposed to understand what these relatively primitive people are doing and from her point of view she is on a mystical quest with a wizard and they're both right and they also both cannot communicate their points of view to each other Because of basic linguistic difficulties, because the things he tries to say simply don't exist as linguistic concepts in her language. So he's when he's trying to explain what he is, he has he's effectively saying in her ears, I'm not a wizard. I'm a wizard because the the gradations of meaning he's trying to use simply don't exist.
0: And what's what's a great character twist and plot twist is about halfway through. So, for for pragmatic reasons, he starts trying to talk her language a little bit. But in in as much as he begins to talk her language to get her to do things, he, in sort of a Wittgensteinian uh, word game way, it starts to get into his vocabulary. Okay, we'll call it a demon. Okay, we'll call it magic. But he starts to, in <laughs> a way, empathize, or at least... Because she she... Can't possibly understand. Like, let's put it this way. Hypothetically, he can understand where her cognitive f- thing is coming from, uh, much more than the other other way around. He doesn't want to in his anthropological, you know, Earth, uh, future Earth training, right? Uh, but he, but he does sort of start, you know, using the language that she's using, and in a way, not go native, right? But but sort of, oh, I don't want to give away what goes on, but. Right? There's that sort of, I don't know if I'm describing it well, but was that a conscious thing with a flip in the middle where he, in, in uh, trying to pragmatically speak her language, starts to inherently, whether he realizes or not, kind of understand uh, what what she's saying? And by the way, I want to point out the, the key thing, the key phrase is that there is no magic. And I'm wondering if you are a Raymond E. Feist fan of fantasy, because his, uh, so Raymond E. Feist falls under the category of what you described of a fantasy writer who for th- multiple decades wrote the same f- three or four book trilogy over and over again. But because he also came from a role-playing, he was also developed a role-playing in college thing, just like you. Um, it was such a deep universe, right? From the beginning, it spun off great computer games and role-playing stuff. He was able to create new characters uh, and, but tied them together in a lineage, a royal lineage, going back to the original books, so you always felt like you were still following the same story, even while it was being told in different ways, and he kept it fresh enough, but, you know, arguably the the, the best character in, in his books is a short little blue-cloaked uh, uh, ragged, uh, raggedy monk named uh, Nakor or Nakor, who... Um, he uh, it, it calls himself a gambler. He's like a thief and a gambler. Um, but he comes across the most um, uh, 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 powerful uh, um, uh, magician in, in all the, the world, Pug, um, uh, who's alive and is the most powerful one a- Anyways, a- and the, he gets Pug's attention because he says to Pug in an offhanded way when they're talking about magic, ah, there is no magic. It's just tricks. And he has a number of ways that he talks about tricks. Um, so like he's got a bag where he's always pulling out oranges and apples, so which is very helpful for you know when you're on a long sea voyage and you have no food. He's constantly pulling out oranges. Well, eventually he explains it to a young magician. He says, "Well, there's an orange dealer back in Kesh, wh- where I'm from, in the desert, and he's got this endless supply of oranges stacked up to the ceiling. And I put, he basically puts like a little wormhole." above the oranges and there's a little wormhole in the bottom of the bag and he reaches it and he grabs it um and, and so it is magic but it is also tricks and and the <laughs> wisest magicians are are aware of it being i i believe as you describe it just a vast understanding of the world that looks like magic or manifests like magic but that also sort of becomes a word game for the for the for the guy right I mean because then what's the difference I call it magic you call it mm. you know a vast understanding of the world right am I am I getting this right at all um in, in terms yeah of I mean it'll
1: it all, it all has its roots in the uh, the old arthur c Clarke Maxim sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic right and that's you know that which is very you know, one of the big things that obviously led to the the ideas that the book is based around um and it's the idea well that's fine you know you can be as technologically sophisticated as you like and look down on these people who believe in magic and so forth but then what do you do when you run into something that you don't understand and have no frame of reference for um is your interpretation and response to that any more valid than theirs given that neither of you actually understand what you're dealing with uh
0: were you ever tempted to just straight up have magic, and just completely. I, I think that would mind. have. Undercut,
1: I would think that would have undercut the um, yeah. the book. I mean, or at what is actually what. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, and the thing is, I mean, ma- magic itself. You know, looking looking at sort of fantasy writer's approach to magic, from the very kind of regimented systems that Sanderson likes, through to completely. um, opaque sort of mystery based magic in, in 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 other works. There are a lot of different ways to approach magic, mm. even in um, fantasy writing. One of one of the weird ironies, of course, is if you look back at the way that people in the actual Middle Ages looked at magic, they looked at it in a scientific way. People who were doing magic, sort of alchemists and things, things like that, that we think of as being weird, superstitious, sort of mystics were really, really just trying to understand the way the world worked Mm -hmm. through their own particular frame of reference. And they, to them, it was an entirely scientific, rational and methodical attempt to get a grip on the basic mechanics of the universe. So weirdly enough, that idea of the very mystical approach to magic isn't actually there in historical approaches to magic at all so you know i mean i think there are probably as many ways to approach magic as there are people writing fantasy in the industry at the moment
0: really quickly what what makes the the feist uh the series called rift war what makes the feist there is no magic thing work is that the highest mages essentially become astrophysicists in the fantasy world in the sense of they discover something called the Hall of uh, of Worlds, which is like, have you seen uh, the Matrix Reloaded, the second Matrix Mm movie? There's the back door, right? So... Neo goes with, with Seraph to the back door, and they open it up, and it's an endless white hallway with doors that all look exactly the same, right? It takes you to all sorts of places, but that's just in the Matrix. But Imagine that for the entire universe, but also all dimensions. And so they even discover the Big Bang, and they discover quantum physics. They don't call it that, but in, in fantasy terms, they have these extended discussions, And but but the reason they have to do this is because they discover that the quote-unquote gods were created by man, which is you know another uh, interesting thing. You know, like if, if God didn't exist, then we would be forced to create him, kind of thing. That the gods were actually just really, really, really advanced folks, but also that their one world among the infinite worlds, uh, the world Midkemia, is actually one of the only worlds with magic, implying that they're actually using qu- that they're using quantum physics again, not in this language this sticks to fantasy terms, but they're using quantum physics essentially to create. The tricks, which is what Necor was talking about the whole time, you know, and wormholes and stuff like that. And so they start seeing mm. it as a scientific perspective. And even when like giant hordes of demons and stuff invade the world, like, they always have to come up with, for lack of a better word, scientific uh, solutions. Um, now, he keeps it in the realm of fantasy, which I really appreciate. Here, you know, the whole point is that there you have the, the back and forth um, play between uh, uh, the two. Um, I, I I I have one final question about this. Um, again, I really appreciate you staying so long. I do have to say though, what immediately grabbed me about the book is, among other things, the anthropologist is suffering from crippling mental illness. And as someone who has suffered from chronic depression in the past and gone through this, he's in a much earlier stage of what I had what I dealt with a while ago and have under control in my brain. It, it was never something behavioral with me. It was. What he's going through, though, where you know, if you didn't know better, you wouldn't know. Actually, most mentally ill people are like this. Mentally ill people are Mm -hmm. excellent at developing living heuristics to not appear mentally ill. So we smile a lot, we act social when we can, but then when we're alone, we're we're you know like this. And your description of what he's repressing, um, uh, 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 in his brain is, (laughs) I mean. I, you know, my dad's a psychologist. He had, didn't suffer from this, but he, me being close with my family, knows what I went through. And I sent him that quote, and him, as a psychologist, was like, wow, he totally nailed it. Like, is very inspired i don't want to get personal with you but like was it a conscious decision to have this character be mentally ill um uh, uh or however you want to phrase it to be suffering from well he calls it depression i i believe yeah. the word and he's aware that he's using science i mean you know that's <laughs> i mean this is a further commentary of you know uh, so, uh, w- when I was in college, I, uh, I. This will be my last anecdote. When I was in college, I studied abroad in Botswana, okay? Which is a relatively advanced, uh, uh, well off African country. But there's still a lot of poor, rural people. And they immediately threw us in the most rural, poor uh, people possible. And they had almost nothing, but they had family and community, and they were so psychologically well adjusted. And people who were mentally ill were. Just the society found something for them to do and to take care of them. You didn't have the homeless guy who was seeing things, you know, begging for money on the side mm. of the road. They'd adopt them in some cases if they were kids, if they were older men. Sometimes they were, you know, seen as shamans. I mean, you know, you, you being an anthropology guy, very easy to, to see how in many societies throughout history, quote unquote, mentally ill people were revered as as shamans and people who have you know visions and, and so forth because they you know it's often very creative people think, thinking outside the box to to say the least and so forth, um and so it was this a commentary on uh, maybe a little bit of reach here him being sort of the modern Western scientific I can explain everything with math and science. I, so I don't want to deal with depression, and the, how we have millions and millions of people in this country with undiagnosed mental illness because we're told that it doesn't really exist, you know, or, or, or like it's something that science and pills can deal with, you know. If you see a therapist and take some pills, you know, science can 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 deal with it, or or you use you know uh, uh, um, modern methods to kind of repress it the way the way he is. I, I'm just curious how that side of this character came about. Um, uh, it's really brilliantly uh, realized.
1: Thank you. I mean, to a certain extent, it's based on my own experiences with depression, um, and the way it manifests in him is very much the way it has manifested with me. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm drawing on my own experience to a fair to a fair amount. But and I just I genuinely felt yeah you know, I I wanted to write a book with that as an aspect, and it seemed to work very well with the other with you know, his situation and his um, his own background, because what, what he's uh, the big thing he's got is he has kind of an implant which allows him to effectively put off the emotional consequences of of um, basically any, anything that happens to him that he can just then deal with when he's got liberty to do so, because one of the. Issues I find with um, mental illness and depression is when you're suffering from it you genuinely ma- you can make very bad decisions because of the way it colors your outlook on life and so it struck me well if you had this very very technologically advanced society how would they what would they do and i didn't want to just have the is oh, yes, magic hand wavy your problem is now cured which is the way that all manner of disabilities are often dealt with either in sort of magical settings or in high, Mm. high science settings. So I thought, well, maybe they've got a situation, which means he can retain a kind of a dispassionate distance with the aid of this implant and then deal with it at his leisure. And that seemed to be a reasonable kind of uh, facility that might be designed. Uh certainly it's something I could I feel I would quite benefit from you Yeah, when you're up against it, it would be nice to mm-hmm. actually at least just put it off until you've done the thing that need doing and then kind of you know deal with deal with it later on. Um and so this is his equivalent of um medicating mm-hmm. for um for depression because I do yeah, you know, I feel medicating for depression uh, is something that has a lot of stigma attached to it. So I wanted to have a science fiction equivalent that was basically being shown as a generally positive thing without it just being, just sort of making his, um, his disability and his problems completely invisible. And so
0: believable. I don't know if that's quite a- <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say is as a fan of cyberpunk, uh, you know, and things like Ghost in the shell with cyber brains, you know, The way mental illness is normally dealt with in something like a ghost in the shell scenario is one, an advanced pill like Soma or whatever in in Brave New World, or using your cyber brain to live out insane fantasies... You know, like a holodeck in your brain or whatever, you know, uh, 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 or, or you know, in the Matrix, you, I mean, the whole point of the Matrix is 99% of the world is kind of mentally ill and wants to live in a simulation that's unreal. Because, you know, that's what's revealed to Neo and Reloaded is that actually we are giving people even though it's near subconscious it is a choice to give people to actually be in the matrix otherwise the matrix wouldn't work implying very heavily that 99% of the world would happily do so um uh, and as you point out uh, but some of us consciously you know <laughs> yearn for such a thing uh, it's just such an obvious thing that's just normally n- not used as a program to deal with emotional problems there's always you know tons mm. of uh, uh, cyberpunk visions to use cyber brains to do intellectual things and personality changes and, and and so forth. Um, uh, but but again, like w- when you rely on medication too much, the program might be extremely effective, but maybe it's too effective, right? And maybe it, it's the best repression ever, but it is sort of a comment on, well, it, <laughs> is the best repression ever so great? Or maybe it's actually the worst thing, because if that repression ever comes out, you know, God knows what, what could happen. Yeah. Wow, it's amazing. Well, you've been getting great uh responses to um to Elder Race. Um uh, thank you so much uh for spending this much time in joining. We didn't even get to talk about Shards of the Earth, which is excellent. I do want to um uh again give a shout out to your your audiobook readers. I mentioned Emma Newman, mm. um and Sophie, I'm blanking on her last name, who read Shards uh, and
1: Aldred, um, Aldred.
0: She's like an actress. Like she's like a Right? She's like on Doctor Who and yeah, she, she, was, like,
1: she was in she was in Doctor Who which yeah. is really cool cuz yeah. Doctor Who. Fan. <laughs>
0: she's she's great. She's great because men or women uh, I mean look, I, my listeners know this. English people are much better actors than Americans. You guys just it's, it's in the culture. There's way more English people playing Americans than Americans playing English people. First of all, we can't do the accent almost ever. Um but uh you know, I mean, if you look at the best shows on Netflix, from Peaky Blinders uh, to, you know, to, to, um, Broadchurch or whatever, like, it's all English productions. Just ask my dad. He's a connoisseur of the best TV. He's, he's seen Peaky Blinders, <laughs> like, in Broadchurch, like, 90 million times. Uh, he'll watch anything with Olivia Coleman in it. Um, but, uh, uh, she, she does the voices and everything so excellently. Like, only Peter Kenny, like I mentioned, who does Ian Banks and The Witcher and a couple other people, um the guy who reads the expanse is excellent as well um at at, at very much knowing when it's a man a woman or a non-binary without ever falling into stereotypes is extremely hard um especially a man trying to do a woman and and vice versa um she does great emma does great too but i just love emma's voice and and her personality i can't wait to continue guns of of the dawn oh final question um what are Mm. you reading What do you recommend to other people other than your your works out there?
1: Um, So I've just finished, uh, just literally finished uh, A Psalm for the Wild Built, which is Becky Chambers' latest novella. Um, She's definitely one of my um, sort of favorite go-to authors at the moment. Um, Prior to that, I think um, the books that impressed me most are Light Chaser, which is Hamilton and Powell. With another novella and uh, Claire North's notes for the burning age, which completely blew my mind when I read it last year.
0: Hmm. I'm going to ask you for these online later. So I can, I can uh, get sure. them and, and pump them out. So, okay. This was great. Okay. So shards of the earth and, uh, um, uh, and, uh, elder race, both fairly, very recent, both excellent. The critics say 10 out of 10. I say 10 out of 10. No question. Um, you know, I I think uh, if Elder Race is the one that spoke to me most personally. And Shards of the Earth is, um, I, I don't want this to sound uh, negative at all. Shards of the Earth is the one where it's like master science fiction. Like from the beginning, there's no like feeling it out. Like I just, it feels like a classic, you know, like Clark, Herbert, like to, to me, just like, and I just, I, I. I like you said, Children of Time. Like I was pumped that there was another one. It works well as a standalone story as well. Shards of the Earth. I, I mean, I, I re-listened to like the last six or seven hours a couple days ago uh, in preparation, but just because I wanted to hear it again. Like it's just it just moves, moves, moves. But the ideas are big. Um. Uh. And uh. I, so I wanted just so you have the sequel to Shards of the Earth coming out in May, I believe. Um, so let, yes. let's talk about what's coming out soon uh, so people uh, can keep an eye on that as well as everything else which I'll have in the copy and so forth
1: so we've got uh, right so yeah. I've, got, I've got quite a busy um, beginning <laughs> of the year next year so, <laughs> we've um, only written we've 40 books got... come
0: on you've got to step it up
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, I believe uh, early on in the year around February is Ascension Day which is my uh, Warhammer 40k novella which is all sorts of uh, gene stealer cult hijinks. Yes. Um, we then have uh, a novella called Ogres, which is coming out, I think, March April time. And then Eyes of the Void, which is the second book of Shards uh, in the architect series, following up Shards of Earth, will be May. Is
0: and I didn't know until we talked recently that so children you have a third ch- uh, children book.
1: Yes, that's probably gonna be about the end of the year. I don't have a definite date for that yet, but that'll that'll hopefully be Children of Memory. And um, yeah, probably probably out um UK and US around the end of twenty two. So the children books
0: and the and the shard now books. Planned mm. for trilogies or see how it goes and maybe continue?
1: Um, the children books I don't know. It very depends if another idea turns up and that's kind of how that series goes, because each one is they're probably the most kind of heavy concept books I do. The Shard, the, Shard, um, the Architects series with Shards Shard of Earth, is that's a trilogy. They're all written um, and delivered. The third one will be out presumably about the same time in 2023. Um, are you the first person
0: writing books uh, in this part of the Warhammer 40K universe?
1: um i'm not sure i think there would be i don't know how much should have been done with the gene Stealer cults before i'm sure that someone has touched on it before me uh, i know the, people have written uh, tyranid stuff before which is obviously all um well there's space hulk that.
0: which i've played and i have there's the the games i'll have to research this well but the
1: the gene stealer cult faction is one of their more recent ones to roll out so i don't know how much has been written with them with them as the focus before, I mean, certainly with them as as protagonists of the story. So it's 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 kind of told half from their point of view and half from the point of view of the uh, adeptus mechanicus.
0: Well, congratulations on all your success. Uh, I love it all. I think it's, it keeps getting better. Um, I got to go back and read the fantasy. Um, you know, I, I think the sci- for me, uh, science fiction is much harder than fantasy. Um, And that's part of why it sells less because science fiction in some ways is much easier to do on screen because it cuts out 95% of the exposition. But the other thing I want to compliment you on is I always talk about, I don't care if a science fiction book is somewhat long, but if it's long because it's just long descriptions of the technology for the sake of describing technology, what I call fetishizing the technological environment also, this happens on Star Trek on television as well, um, fetishizing the technology for technology's sake. Um... Th- th- I immediately lose interest. And while you have high technology, y- 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 it only gets a- a- expositioned out if it's like, this does this so that I can do this and so it can do this. A- and, you know, <laughs> and my theory is that's why your books are all five, 600 pages, not because you're trying not to write 1200 pages, but because you don't spend 600 pages describing the inside of the spaceship, which I, I can just do with in my imagination. So science fiction is very hard to do, but I love fantasy. It goes back to my childhood. I love long fantasy series. I've already got the first four, uh, Shadows books on my, uh, my Kindle. Um, so, uh, I'll put this all in the copy. Thank you again so much. We can, uh, guys, you can find him, uh, you can find Adrian at, uh, aptshadow, aptshadow, at aptshadow on Twitter. He's a great Twitter follow. He doesn't preach, uh, stuff. It's funny. Um, it's, uh, it's to the point, and again, great pictures of of the miniatures, uh, which are so super cool. And if I can ever get you back next year, we got to just do a Warhammer podcast uh, when your stuff comes <laughs> out because I've become a huge Warhammer fan, and there's not a lot of Americans so I can talk to about it. Because again, it's sort of a cult thing here. Um, I'm very excited about what you're doing because 4Dk in particular is like right up my alley, um, and uh, my biggest thing is. Uh, first of all, if I'm Black Library, I'm putting my claws into you and never letting you go. I'm going to force you to write a Warhammer something every year or two for as long <laughs> as you live, uh, which I think they can probably do. Uh, but secondly, guys, can we get a good 40K video game? Please, please. you yeah, Total War, Warhammer 1, 2, and 3. I love the fantasy setting. Can we get a good 40K game? I know you can put in the good word for me. Let's get a good 40K video <laughs> game. <laughs> Actually, that was the whole point of this podcast. Adrian, thank you so much. Any final thoughts uh, for the Bizzlecast listeners and the people out there uh, in uh, the good US of A, or my international audience as well, of which I do have? Um, yeah, just uh, any any final, uh, any final thoughts? Any, any parting words of wisdom? Um, maybe uh, to uh, aspiring authors out there, creative types, what would you uh, to leave us with?
1: Um, I know ne- I, I'm, I'm writing, writing advice is hard. Everyone has their own process. It basically comes down to persistence and just making sure you're submitting the best version of whatever it is you're writing. Other than that, I'd just like to say, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been absolutely grand.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm so thrilled. And, uh, um, I just, uh, I mean, this is, this is my favorite thing is, is great science fiction and fantasy and, and, and you're making it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I spend a lot of my day, even when I'm doing other things, listening to, to audiobooks um, and when I can relax reading, uh, reading this stuff. Um, and uh, just thank you for from everyone out there, your fans and your future fans, because I'm going to make you all read these books and it won't be that hard because once you start, you won't want to stop. Um, and uh, just thank you again, Adrian. And I look forward to continuing our conversations uh, uh, online and so forth. Cheers. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This was a great one. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back at you soon with some other podcasts. You've been great. I've been the Bizzle. May the force be with you, but for now, the cast is out.